the 127th quack cast. This one is called Pump It Up, Osteopathic Manipulation in Influenza. First, my bias. I work in Portland, Oregon, not Portland, Maine, the poser city. And we have medical students and residents and faculty who are DOs, doctors of osteopathy. Before he moved on to be a hospitalist, my primary care physician was a DO. From my experience, there is no difference between an MD and a DO. In my world, they are interchangeable. There are many more qualified applicants for medical education than positions in MD programs, and as a result, some very good people opt for a DO education. However, osteopathy has a dark side. As best I can determine from my colleagues, learning osteopathic manipulation, OM, is the price they pay to obtain an otherwise standard medical education. I have yet to see OM offered by any of my DO colleagues. It may be they know better than to offer such a modality around me, given my ranty propensity for all things scam. Actually, just my ranty propensity. The literature would suggest that OM is left behind by most DOs upon graduation. With about half of DOs using OM on only about 5% or less of their patient population. DOs are not proud of their osteopathic manipulation and rarely invite them round to dinner. It will be interesting to see if osteopathic manipulation fades over time in osteopathy school as the old-time true believers slowly die off and are supplanted by a generation of DOs trained with a more traditional medical education. Osteopathic manipulation, the small pseudoscientific aspect of DO medical school education, is a form of massage and manipulation invented in the 19th century with, as is often the case, no basis in reality. O.M. postulates, quote, the existence of a myofascial continuity, a tissue layer that interlinks all parts of the body. By manipulating the bones and muscles of a patient, a practitioner is supposed to be able to diagnose and treat a variety of systemic human ailments, end of quote. Studies into the efficacy of OM find it to be ineffective for any process besides low back pain, and is there any musculoskeletal intervention that does not help low back pain? Not surprising for a therapeutic intervention that is mostly detached from reality. My purpose with this podcast is not to review OM per se, which may be a good topic someday, but to focus instead on a specific application of OM. Despite OM fading in the U.S., that does not mean there are not true believers. All nonsense has its die-hard proponents, and osteopathic manipulation is no exception. And this yields peculiar publications. An example, I ran across the following. The 2012-2013 Influenza Epidemic and the Role of Osteopathic Manipulative Medicine. Now that caught my interest. How, I wondered, could a ritualistic massage and muscle manipulation have any effect on a virus that is multiplying in and destroying respiratory epithelial cells? Can they do OM on the lining of the lung? And if so, how do they get into the airway to do it? 
inquiring minds want to know the rationale behind such a goofy intervention for a viral infection of the lung. Routine listeners of this podcast know I'm very much a Bayesian prior plausibility kind of guy. It is, to speak in the terms of a Sicilian, inconceivable to me that OM could have any effect whatsoever on influenza. Quote, There remains a great need for a something more to be done to deal with this highly contagious viral infection. And that something is embodied by what osteopathic medicine has offered in the past, a distinctive care that helped the world manage the Spanish influenza pandemic of 1918-19 nearly 100 years ago. Then as now, osteopathic physicians were in a unique position, armed with osteopathic manipulative treatment. Modern osteopathic physicians use OMT in conjunction with vaccination, antiviral treatment, and chemoprophylaxis to turn the tide against this devastating, highly contagious pathogen. Okay, end of quote. Weird, huh? They give a list of reality-based interventions to decrease infection risk and therapy, hygiene, vaccination, medication, then toss in some useless pseudoscience like it's going to do something. It's interesting how a mind can hold two contradictory ideas at the same time, simultaneously suggesting reality and fantasy-based medicine. One of the themes of this podcast and one of the topics I have an evolving interest in is how we know what is true and the standards we use to determine reality. My time in the world of science-based medicine has greatly heightened my awareness as to how horrendous we are at interpreting the effectiveness of medical interventions and how iffy much of the medical literature is. So what is the basis of using OM for the treatment of influenza? For that, you have to go back to a time when all medical treatments were little better than using stone knives and bearskins, the turn of the century. It was a time when most medicine was, by the standards of today, worthless, dangerous, or both. Most of the focus of this entry will be on the original papers, which had damn well be pretty impressive to suggest OM is a reasonable adjunct to standard influenza care. Spoiler, it isn't. The source was the 1918-19 influenza pandemic where, quote, osteopaths had a substantial impact on patient care. According to Smith, patients who received conventional, i.e. allopathic, medical treatment had a death rate 40 times higher than those who received osteopathic care. Standard care at the time had a case fatality rate of about 2.5%, although they give more impressive mortality rates in the original paper. Whoa. Really? It did? That would be amazing if true. Let's go to the videotape, or... In this case, some scanned PDFs. The original reference from 1919 is a fun read. It is the transcription of a talk full of the pomp and verbosity common in the time. I am writing the final draft of this essay during breaks at a national ID meeting, where I have spent most of the last few days having PowerPoint slides read to me. We could really use some 19th century pomp and verbosity to enliven these sessions. The reproduction of the PDFs is poor with a lot of bleed-through. So I think it says, and this is the methods part of the presentation, quote, As you know, a letter containing a blank questionnaire on influenza and pneumonias was sent last November to all practicing osteopathic physicians in the United States and Canada. 
Strict and emphasized instructions were given to report only definitive and well-developed cases and to report all such together with all fatalities. That's it. I cannot locate what the strict and emphasized instructions were, and very little real data is given. Nowhere in the original paper do they mention what kind of osteopathic manipulation was used. They were nonspecific in that. And there was more a focus in the paper on what was not done by the osteopaths. No aspirin, no narcotics. The data was equally minimalistic in when it was presented. In the original paper, it was reported that 2,445 osteopaths answered the questionnaire and reported treating 110,220 cases of influenza with 257 deaths, a quarter of 1%. They also reported 6,248 cases of pneumonia with 655 deaths. The paper was presented July 1919, only seven months after the end of the epidemic. That is a pretty damn impressive turnaround time to send out almost 2,500 letters, have them filled out, returned, read, collated 110,220 cases of influenza, read them, and analyzed them. And this is an era of the Postal Service. No computers. I would so love to see those letters. It just seems a wee bit suspicious to me. I don't know if anyone has the originals, but, but this kind of turnaround time and that kind of volume in that short a term doesn't pass the smell test. Quote, a further illuminating feature of these reports reveal the fact that few persons contracted influenza who, just preceding and at the time of the epidemic, had been having more or less regular osteopathic manipulative treatment. Wonder how they know that. The actual data to support the preventative effects of OM? Nothing. Just his assertion. Color me unimpressed with the data. It's a mauvey shade of pinky russet that is the color of unimpressed, if you must know. Most of the report goes on to castigate the powers that be for not including DOs as part of the medical response to the pandemic, despite their superior medical treatments, and noting that DOs did not make any of their patients drug addicts. It is really quite an indignant screed, worthy of the blogosphere, but short on real supporting data. The paper, while interesting, is of no value whatsoever for supporting the use of osteopathic manipulation for influenza. There is no microbiologic diagnosis, no case definition, no case control. There's a huge opportunity for reporting bias that renders the information totally unreliable. And to be honest, given the volume of the data reported and the time frame in which it was reported, I don't really believe it. But a fun rant does not a reliable intervention make. I would love to see the original questionnaires and look at the data. We have to take the word of the author who, from the tone of the paper, has a real axe to grind in the promotion of DO slash OM therapy. Although anti-medication in tone, it is of interest that they were the opinion that, quote, in the 1918-1919, aspirin dot 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 played the same harmful role as was played by antipyrin and, I can't make it out in the text, a generation earlier, end of quote. Just how much of death in the U.S. from influenza was due to inadvertent aspirin overdose is an interesting question. 
Quote, in 1918, the U.S. Surgeon General of the U.S. Navy and the American Journal of Medical Association recommended use of aspirin just before the October death spike. It has been suggested that aspirin overdose led to significant pulmonary edema and death in the U.S. If these recommendations were followed, and if pulmonary edema occurred in 3% of patients, a significant proportion of deaths may be attributable to aspirin, end of quote. A curious hypothesis, although the virus was quite capable of killing without the benefit of medical care and aspirin. And it killed worldwide where there wasn't necessarily access to aspirin overdose. It would be an interesting question as to whether it was DO care or the avoidance of MD care and aspirin, if it occurred, that resulted in the very suspect improved survival data. The fact that most scams do nothing would be a benefit in a time when medicine inflicted aggressive nonsense upon the ill. More likely, it is biased reporting by an author railing against, quote, medical bigotry and medical politics, end of quote. Even if OM care was responsible for a decreased death rate, I would be skeptical based on the methods and data reporting. It is more likely a result of what DOs did not do, standard care, which than what they did do, osteopathic manipulation. The author of the 1937 paper referring to the 1919 report credits, quote, the lymphatic pump technique, which became popular in the last few years, is a procedure of definite value in the treatment of influenza, end of quote. What proportion of patients actually receive the lymphatic pump technique cannot be discovered because it was not mentioned in the original 1919 paper exactly what the DO interventions consisted of. So the 1937 paper is just pulling this out of, let's say, thin air. As best as can be determined, there is no information in the original reports to suggest that any conclusions can be made about any specific osteopathic intervention for influenza as no specific intervention is mentioned, much less the use of any lymphatic pump. The fact that there is no mention of lymphatic pump as an intervention that led to such a dramatic decline in mortality doesn't stop the technique as being touted for the treatment of influenza. Quote, Should we face additional waves of new influenza infections in the coming year, the use of gentle lymphatic treatment techniques and medications such as ulcitamivir will likely help prevent many persons from getting influenza-related complications that took so many lives during the Spanish influenza epidemic of 1918-1919. End of quote. A common problem in interpreting the effects of Wacaloon therapies, patients take the Wacaloon therapy, they take standard care, and it's the Wacaloon that gets all the credit. And, quote, retrospective data gathered at the American Osteopathic Association shortly after the 1918-1919 influenza pandemic have suggested that osteopathic physicians using their distinctive osteopathic manipulative treatment methods observe significantly lower morbidity and mortality among their patients as compared to those treated by allopathic physicians with standard medical care available at the time. In the light of limited prevention and treatment options available, it seems logical that a preparedness plan for the treatment of avian influenza should include these OMT procedures provided by DOs and other healthcare providers capable of being trained to perform these therapeutic interventions. They go on to 
say, and I love their understatement about the validity of the original data, quote, these were not controlled studies. The data is retrospective, and some conclusions cannot be well drawn from such information. How about no conclusions can be drawn? I grow even more of a mauvey shade of pinkish russet by that paragraph. It doesn't prevent, however, the author from declaring, quote, OMT proved to be a critical factor in the success of osteopathic physicians treating influenza patients during the pandemic of 1918. They then suggest a variety of pumps that are supposed to boost the immune system, zero prior plausibility for that concept, and increase lymph flow. Oh, maybe, but I can't see how that lymph flow would be of any value in and of itself. And a short-term increase in lymph flow, if it does occur in OM, would be of a brief and inconsequential amount given the duration of the intervention relative to the 24-7 illness of influenza. You get pump therapy for five minutes during a 24-hour period. That's going to do nothing. A pump would be like adding a lit match to increase the burn rate of a forest fire. The various pumps that are described look to me more like a series of massages, some of which look like they were designed to give influenza to the practitioner. I wonder how a patient with influenza, intractable cough, high fevers, and severe myalgia would lie still long enough to let this be done. It is often interesting to go back to the original literature and see if the paper actually says what people says it does. I learned as a fellow that papers are often ink blots, and people see in them what they think should be there rather than what actually is. Confirmation bias can show up in the damnedest of places. A reading of the primary literature for osteopathic manipulation and influenza does not lead to great confidence in the intervention for the treatment of influenza nor do the papers actually say what the proponents suggest they do. I become Sheltonac's jujuberry shrub. As we head into influenza season, stick with reality-based interventions. Wash your hands. Avoid the spew of coffers, which is harder than you might think. Get the vaccine and perhaps be replete in your vitamin D. I think it is safe to say you can pass on osteopathic manipulation. And that ends the 127th QuackCast. Feel free to go online and write glowing reviews of this. And of course, my growing multimedia empire at edgydoc.com. And all the references are available over on Science Based Medicine. Thanks. Goodbye.